If you're new or visiting or didn't bring your Bible, there's one tucked in the back of a pew nearby that you're welcome to use. We've been working right through the book of 1 Corinthians, um, and recently we've been working through chapter 7 in a mini-series that we've called It's All Good. And it focuses primarily on marriage, sex, singleness, divorce, remarriage, and it's surprisingly balanced. This chapter is one of those unique places that's so balanced, it gets imbalanced on every side. In other words, some people point to this chapter and say, see, singleness is bad, or see, celibacy is the right way or the better way, and they end up falling all around the place because that's how balanced Paul is. But we need to understand before we start tonight that there's a reason for that. There's a reason why Paul is um, you know, walking this incredibly razor-thin, narrow dealing of this. And the reason is because the Corinthian church is a mess. And it's not a consistent mess. It's not one big hot mess. It's a fragmented, partied, bipartisan mess. And this is pretty easy to see on the, on the realities that we've been talking about um, because we, we find in chapter 6 that there's a group of people who are saying that uh, what Christianity means is that somehow we've transcended you know, some of the old ways of viewing sin. So now we know that sex is just a bodily function and can be uh, you know, engaged and utilized without it being a big deal. Sex is just nothing but, but a casual impulse that you have that you should address just as casually. So he deals with that in chapter 6, and then in chapter 7, he has to respond to another audience in the church that says, no, actually, sex is so defiling, so dirty, so bad, that even if you need it to have kids, and even if you're married, you probably shouldn't be doing it all that often. It'd be better to be celibate even if you're married. And so he's in this weird place where both of them are wrong, and in a sense, he needs to stand with both of them without standing with either of them. Does that make sense? He needs to be able to embrace some of the things that they see and completely uproot their misunderstandings at the same time, uh, which is a challenge. Another thing that makes this passage really challenging um, is, is that... Uh, well, basically everything. I, I will tell you this about Bible commentators, first and foremost. They seem to be always wanting to determine which is the most difficult passage to teach or which is the most difficult passage to understand. And it's almost always the one you're reading. And so it comes up a lot. And they can't all be the most difficult. But this section, this final section of 1 Corinthians 7, is a pretty good contender. And it's for a bunch of reasons. It's because um, we're going to be talking about engaged couples, betrothal is the word that the ESV uses, what that looks like in a Jewish context, in a Roman context, couldn't be more different. Not to mention how different it is from today. Um, on top of that, verse 34 there, uh, that is one of the most diversely represented uh, Greek sentences in the manuscripts that we have on record. Like the witnesses are so completely divided. All of these old manuscripts we have for the original language documents, you know, copies of copies of copies, have so many possibilities for that verse. And to be honest, none of them really change the meaning of the passage. But it's just dropped right in there and you have to try and decide what to do with it. And then there's the fact that um, many people have tried to see in this and, or answer the question exactly what is going on in the church of Corinth that he needs to address? You'll see as we open in verse 25, he says, now concerning. Okay, what that tells us is he's addressing something specific. Most likely something that they wrote him about. Like back in chapter 7, verse 1, now concerning the matters which you wrote to me. And so here's one of these matters. But we're not told what it is. And when you try and piece it together... Um, commentators just diverge in a lot of places. And so I'm going to take the approach tonight that seems not just the most reasonable, but the most consistent. The one that answers the most questions the most often, okay? And once again, it really doesn't change the principles that he's going to present at all. But it is helpful for bridging the gap between then and now. For example, as he talks about singleness tonight, he, if uh, he's talking to people who are currently engaged and helping them weigh the realities of singleness. That's very different than, um, for example, somebody who desires to be married and, and is frustrated with their singleness, right? That's not where he comes from tonight. The principles we'll see are the same, but understanding these things can be a challenge. 
The last thing that I want to mention before we move forward, I said a few weeks ago, and I just want to repeat. Why, if you're not single tonight, is it worthwhile for you to sit and listen to this? Okay. Now, I had to say the opposite to the singles in the crowd when we were talking about marriage, and the reasons are basically threefold. One, the church is a community, and the Christian life is communal, which means whether you relate directly to the text, men when it talks to women or women when it talks to men, children when it talks to parents, you are related to and deeply invested in the obedience of people who need this text, who this text speaks to, okay? And so we are to be a support system for the marrieds and for the singles, for the divorced and for the remarried. And so knowing what the Bible teaches on these things helps you to be a better helper, okay? Second, very few, especially on an issue like, um, like this, when we're talking about marital status, very few of the things the Bible addresses are permanent. So gender may be, male or female, but if you're single, you may at one point be married. If you're married currently, you may at one point be a widow or a widower, right? Uh, that reality is helpful in approaching a passage like this because you don't know when this passage may become relevant. And then there's a third reason that will come out very strongly tonight. What God has done in Jesus Christ, the whole concept of God becoming a man and living the perfect life we couldn't live and then dying the death that we deserve was so uh, world-altering that it changes the paradigm on all of life. Marriage, singleness, poverty, riches, having having not, persecution, joy, pleasure, every one of those becomes nuanced in the Christian position because God is rolling out a new plan. And so what Paul will say right in the middle of this passage is that the present world is passing away and that changes everything. And what's intriguing is it changes everything so drastically for everybody that we have more in common than our differences. And so even if you're married tonight, this passage will speak directly to you at the heart level, even if it doesn't manifest at the circumstantial level. And that's consistently been the case in 1 Corinthians 7, and I would argue it's consistently the case in the Bible, that when we really get down to the heart level, um, there's so much in common that you should be able to glean from anywhere. So now that I've got that preamble out of the way, I'd like to read the passage through, and then we'll pray. We'll be finishing off chapter 7, starting in verse 25 and going all the way to verse 40. Let's read it together. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it's, a good, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they have none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings in it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry, it's no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desires under control and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet, in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too of the Spirit of God. Let's pray. God, this one idea that this present world is passing away and that a new age is dawning is the heartbeat of the Christian ethic. 
It shapes everything we see and everything we do, and yet it is inherently behind the scenes. It's very easy to forget. It's very easy to neglect. The issue tonight will not be if we think Paul's reasons are good, but if we've ever even considered them, if we're willing to consider them. And so I pray, God, that you would help us to be able to see this tremendous reality of the kingdom that has begun and will be consummated, of eternal life that has begun and will be completed and fulfilled, of salvation that has started and God will carry through to the end. I pray that you'd help us in this way. In Jesus' name, amen. Like I said, the simplest way to read this passage is that the entirety of it is addressed to couples that are currently engaged. Okay, and so Paul's not talking to this audience and then this audience and then this audience. The whole time he's speaking to uh, Christians who are currently engaged and what provokes this apparently is two things that we'll see tonight. One is there's this faction of the church that has said, well, if you got married, you have to stay married. You should just have, stop having sex. So you can imagine what their advice to single people is. It'd be better not to marry. Don't marry you're, you're only engaged, it doesn't count yet, just break off the wedding and serve the Lord. The second thing that he brings out, he just refers to as because of the present distress. Now that's not very helpful for us. What we can know for sure is that Paul knows what he's referring to, obviously he wrote it, and the Corinthians do. Like, isn't this just a part of conversation? Some things are such a big part of our current reality that we speak of them in general terms. And so if I'm talking about the flooding that's going on in the United States right now, you all know the region that I'm talking about, even though I don't name it. In the same way, whatever's going on in Corinth, and we don't really know what it was, it's big enough that everybody knows what they're talking about, and also big enough that he wants to bring it into the conversation of should we get married, or the Corinthian church brought it in and just said, maybe the question isn't should people get married at all, but should they get married right now? Now, like I said, that's, that's pretty specific circumstances. Paul's first reason for, for singleness being better is rooted right in that reality of whatever that present distress is. But the more he talks, the further he moves above and beyond that and starts to lay out other principles that will apply. But we'll see there's something for us to learn even in that. But I would argue that throughout this whole passage, this is who he has in mind who he's talking to. Um, all the way through verse 36 and 38. If you have an older translation, that passage can read about fathers and what to do with their single daughters. That's a really challenging position to hold, and I'm not going to tell you why tonight. We're just going to assume, like he was doing in verse 25, that the whole time he's talking to engaged couples. It's a much easier way to read it. So, Verse 25, now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. If you read that poorly, this is what it sounds like. I have no idea what to tell you what's right, except for my opinion, so I'll give you that. It sounds like he's just giving counsel, even if it's just pastoral counsel, and he wants to make clear up at front that this is just his opinion. I would think that he's doing something a little bit different than that. Okay? First off, if you were studying with us the last few weeks, we've already seen that Paul has made a distinction between the things Jesus actually said and inferences from that. And so he knows that Jesus spoke directly on divorce, and he says, not I, but the Lord has already told you, and he teaches from there. And then he says, now, if you're currently married to a non-believer, I, not the Lord, say, and he's not um, taking a lower rung of authority. He's not saying, this answer is above my pay grade, so keep that in mind. He's just recognizing that Jesus didn't speak directly to that. That's part of what's going on here. He says, I have no command from the Lord. I can't point to another place in scripture that gives guidance for engaged couples in times of distress. But what he says next is, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Now, those two phrases together, God's mercy made me trustworthy, for Paul always speaks of his apostleship. He says that even though I was a blasphemer, God mercifully called me into ministry. Okay, And so what he's recognizing here is that he speaks as one appointed by Jesus to speak to the church, as one appointed by Jesus to write scripture. Okay, But on the other hand, there is a part of this where what he's trying to recognize here, and you'll see this if you read the passage, he'll say things like, um, I think 
if it fits your conscience, if you're determined in your own heart. What he's recognizing here, and he'll say it in just a minute, this is not a moral issue. To marry or not to marry is not a moral issue, even in times of present distress. So he wants to bring some rationality to it. He wants to think through some things. But if you read the passage, you can't walk away from it and go, well, that engaged couple who decides to get married is sinning, or that engaged couple who stays single is sinning. Paul says that's irrelevant to the conversation we're about to have. But let me give you some perspective. Let me help you to situate your decision-making in the context of a Christian worldview. That's what he's saying here, okay? Now, he gives us the first reason, the first reason he believes singleness to be better in verse 26. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Now, he expands on this in verse 27. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. I want to deal with that verse first very quickly because it sounds like he's just repeating something he said earlier in the chapter. Let the married not seek to be unmarried and let the unmarried not seek to be married. It almost reads exactly the same in English. But in the Greek, it says something that's a little bit different. The translators here are adding a lot to try and help our understanding. What it literally says is, if you are bound, don't seek to be loosed. And if you are loosed, do not seek a woman. That's the word-for-word translation of this verse, okay? What I think he's actually talking about here, once again, to betrothed couples are, are you engaged or not? In view of the present distress, he's basically advocating that they not be quick to call it off entirely, right? If you're bound, don't seek to be loosed. If you're engaged, because of the present distress, maybe it's a bad time to be married, but hold off. And on the other hand, he says, however, if you're single, now is not the time to get engaged. Does that make sense? Do you see the practicality of that? One of the things that's really interesting to me right off the bat about the way Paul talks is that it's so different of how I view American relationship making. If anything fits because of present distress, war does, right? But what's the image we have of when war breaks out in terms of relationships? It is almost American heritage that that's when the soldier gets married before he goes to war, right? It's just a difference that we need to be aware of. But there's two things in his advice here that are very important. He says in verse 28, But if you do marry, you have not sinned, and if your betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Okay? Here's what he's saying. First and foremost, he says it's not a sin issue. And in terms of singleness tonight, we need to hear that. This is not a moral issue. To marry or not to marry does not equal righteousness at all. Paul just completely uproots it and moves it off the table. Now, the reality is we never talk directly, specifically, as if that's the case. Like, why would you be so disobedient that you haven't found a spouse yet? That's not a phrase we normally say. Or, I can't believe you would rebel against God and take a spouse. That's not the reality. But when we get one layer removed from that, we talk all the time as if this is very much a moral issue, right? And so if somebody's single and older, we assume that there's a reason for it. And it's almost always a moral reason, right? Why can't you be determined enough, get your act together, you know, all, all of these things enter into it. Um, or, on the other hand, sometimes we assume that singleness is basically selfishness. Or maybe we would even say, if these people really believed in family the way God did, right? I've heard these things out of Christians' mouths. Paul uproots all of that and says, that is inappropriate. It, it is irrelevant to the conversation. And we have to watch out for this an amazing ability we have to moralize the amoral. Not the unmoral, not the immoral. We should continue to watch out for that as well. But the things that are not moral in their sense. The question is, can you serve, a, uh, serve God with a life that's glorifying to him, married or single? The answer is yes. Okay. And any time we draw a line in the sand that says, you are less than me, or you are worse than me, or I am greater than you, because I am married or single, you're off course to begin with. We have to hear that tonight. Okay, that's where it begins. But the second thing is very intriguing, and it deals with this present distress. And he says, 
in my opinion, it's better for you not to marry in terms of the present distress. And he tells us why in the next verse there. In verse 28, if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I will spare you that. Okay. Now, once again, this, this is recognizing something that might be hard for us to get. Here's two possibilities for what's going on in the church of Corinth in these days. We know that in the late 40s and early 50s of the first century, there was a Roman uh, huge famine, a huge food shortage. Time-wise, that may be right exactly here. And so the present distress may be that there is not enough food available. And remember, this is the ancient world, okay? Uh, Bomb shelters full of canned goods are non-existent. You know, um, stocks of, of dry goods that the government holds on to for such a time as this, or a worldwide economy that can compensate these things, all non-existent, okay? And so it's not just that some parts of the world are experiencing famine, it's that food is scarce in Corinth. Now, as a single person, that means you go hungry. As a married person, that means you starve your wife. And remember here, this is first century, so if you're married you're probably having kids. There's, there's not much option in the way of uh, ways to avoid that reality. It's a different thing. It's a different thing to, to navigate trouble like this with family members, with children. The other option is persecution. Okay? We know that within two decades, persecution ramps up in the Roman Empire to the degree that Christians are effectively constantly, daily, Rome-wide in fear for their lives. And there's already pieces of that playing out in the New Testament story. Jesus warned that it was coming, and so maybe this is starting to show up very clearly in Corinth. That's possible as well. This is another place where it's very easy to understand what Paul is saying, okay? Recognize that this is how persecution almost always works throughout church history. They will let you go if you recant, Right? They will let you go if you walk away from Christianity. Now, if you really know who Jesus is, if you're like the man in the story of the pearl of great price, and you will sell everything you to have what God has given you, if that's the phenomenon you're in, that is somewhat easy. If you can really stand on the promises that uh, he who believes in me shall never die, like Jesus says in the Gospel of John, that's fine. But it's a very different thing when that same gun being held to your head is held to your spouse's head, is it not? or your child's head. It's a lot harder of a scenario. Okay? Now, we are in such a world that even our hard parts of life very rarely reach this level, and it's important to keep that in mind, but there is something for us to learn from here. Okay? There is this philosophy of marriage, which Timothy Keller calls the apocalyptic view of marriage. Here's, here's what it is. It's that romance as part of your life is a crisis event that is either comedy or tragedy and determines your fate and value as a human being, okay? These are the only romance movies we tell, right? And it goes all the way back to Romeo and Juliet. Suddenly, marriage is a life-or-death situation, is it not? And even our romantic comedies, that's how it plays out. And the funny thing is, when, when filmmakers try and do something different, like I don't know if you saw 500 Days of Summer, they try to tell a different narrative. They try and break away from that reality, and you hate watching it. You don't want to see it, right? We're, we're trained for this view of marriage. And so here's one of the ways this translates that we really have to be careful of. We start to see marriage as a solution to the difficulty of life. And so what we think of is, is at the very least, marriage is the addition of a home life. Or maybe even it's the subtraction, right? I have this peaceful space now where I can escape from. And Paul would argue with that math and say it might be better to see it as multiplication. Is life better with two? Yes. You know that with the coffee bars you go to. The fact that very few of us like to eat lunch alone, right? They, that's a part of life. There's multiplication involved in relationship, but the sorrows multiply as well. And I think, honestly, Paul would help, help us to recognize what we're, what we're really unwilling to recognize, which is more family, more problems. And that really is a reality, one that we don't always think about. And, and so right up front, he challenges this apocalyptic view of marriage that marriage either makes or breaks a life, that romance either 
satisfies, or if it's missing, then your life cannot be satisfied. I'm just drawing that implication from the fact that he says, in times of trouble, it may not be bad, a good idea to avoid. This apocalyptic view would say, last-ditch effort at happiness, right? Your whole life has gone to hell. Every relationship doesn't make sense. Your last chance is to find a spouse. And Paul would say, are you crazy? Do you not realize that the parents you're estranged from are about to be their in-laws, right? Do we see the bigger reality, how complex these things are? Now, he continues, and here's the wild thing. Paul starts in what's very practical and obvious and may only apply to some people at some times, whatever a present distress is. But what he says next, he basically takes that present distress and he says, really, this is just a picture of something bigger. He moves behind the curtain and he says, whatever play is playing out on the stage, let me tell you how it ends when the curtain falls. He moves forward and he goes from this present distress in this place at this time to this huge reality of how the Bible views time and end times that, that deals with everybody, okay? In other words, what I'm saying is he jumps from the practical to the eschatological, to the end time things. Notice how he does it. This is what he says in verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. And then look at verse 31. Those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. Between that is sandwiched five sayings that we'll look at in just a sentence, just a second. But it begins with, the time has grown short, and it ends with, the present world is passing away. Now, the time has grown very short makes us think that he thinks the end is nigh. And so, basically, the advice would become like this. Listen, Jesus could come back at any moment. Why pursue something as long-term as, as marriage? You don't have time for that. You don't have time to plan a wedding. Jesus is coming. That doesn't make any sense, okay? The Bible, more broadly, doesn't need the return of Jesus to help us understand that your tomorrow is not guaranteed. Death does that plenty easy. The reality is all of you have an appointment with death and none of you know when it is. And so every plan as a human being has to be done with the open hand that recognizes you may not come to the completion of it, okay? That's not what Paul is talking about here. In fact, when he says the time is grown very short, he doesn't use a word for short in time or even short in length. You know where this word is used? If you're, if you're nautical in nature, if you're sailing a boat and you have a sail on your boat and you pull that sail tight so that it furls up and compresses, that's this word, okay? What he says is the time has become very compressed. That's a little bit hard to understand if you don't understand the way Paul and the New Testament authors see what Jesus has done. I'll give you an example. The very first sermon that Peter the Apostle preaches after the resurrection of Jesus is in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And he reaches into an Old Testament prophecies about the last days and he says those days are here. Now doesn't that sound weird knowing that that was 2,000 years ago? That seems like a very broad category for last but as you read very closely in the New Testament, and even when you look at the prophets, what you discover is that the Jews thought of the world in terms of two ages, the age that is and the age to come. And instead of trying to combat that in what happened with Jesus, the apostles basically just said both of those are true with one little nuance, and I'll have to put my Bible down to show you what it is. We all live in this age. When Jesus came, the age to come began and now overlaps and overlays this age. And so what I'm saying is the life that began on earth before Jesus is playing out and will continue to. But the life that Jesus began in the bringing of the kingdom has already started. Okay? We make this mistake when we talk about eternal life as something that God gives us after we die. Read the book again. Jesus says eternal life begins when you receive Jesus. It starts now. And so what he's saying is basically two things. The first is he says the time is growing short, it's compressed. In other words, the reality of heaven and the eternal state is spilling into your life as a Christian right now. It's present tense in your life now. Not consummated, not fulfilled. Jesus' kingdom has been inaugurated, but it will be fully brought to bear. You have started to experience, for example, victory over sin. That doesn't mean you're sinless. You've started to taste the joys of a relationship with God, but how much closer will it be in heaven, right? And so it's begun. 
And so the idea here is that if you were to look out of the sky of our lives, it is a little bit red. It's darkness with a little bit red. And the question becomes, is a new day dawning or is this day ending? And the Bible just says, yes, both of those are happening at the same time. Okay. And so what that means is, um, Paul says, we come at every aspect of our life with those realities coming to bear. That we know that this world and all the values of this world, including marriage, according to Jesus, are only built for this time now and do not have eternal continuation. Okay? Jesus says in heaven we neither marry nor are given in marriage. Right? Marriage is a present tense, this life on this earth reality. In the same way, so is building a business. Right? And I would imagine to some degree buying a house there's so many things you do in your life that are a part of the now and will continue to be until you die, but there's also all of these elements that are a part of the then that you're already experiencing. Okay, let me give you one more illustration to lay this down. The great view of heaven according to the book of Revelation is that we will be with God. But because of the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ, God is already with us, right? That has already began. You are no longer alone. And Jesus said, even as he ascended to heaven, truly, I will be with you always. But that with, and the with we'll experience when Jesus wipes away every tear, is different. Not in, quanti- or not, not in, deg- uh, in, in category, but difference in degree. It's begun, but it's not yet finished. Now notice how Paul brings this to bear on the issue at hand. Look at what he says here. He says, from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. Okay? Now, these, these five sayings, once again, are sandwiched between two sentences. The time has become very compressed. In other words, it's like we can see through history to beyond it now. And the present age is passing away. And this phrase for passing away is the same phrase you would use for restaging the set in a theater. Okay? The scenery is changing. This scene is going off stage and a new scenery is coming in. And between it, he makes these five statements. And the first one is about marriage. He says, even those who are married, let them be as though they were not. Okay? Now, clearly, he doesn't mean you should just ignore your spouse so you can be a better Christian. You cannot read even the rest of Paul's writing, let alone the rest of the Bible, and come to that conclusion. He said earlier in the chapter that marriage is good, and if you're in it, you should be doing it wholeheartedly. That one of the ways that you love the Lord is to love your spouse should be obvious according to a biblical ethic. Okay? So what does he mean here? It's easier to understand when we look at the next ones on the list. Look at verse 30. Those who mourn as though they not, were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. Now, as a cross-reference, I'm not going to turn there, but if you look at 2 Corinthians 6, verse... Sorry, my handwriting is ten, uh, terrible, so I'm going to guess it's verse 10. 2 Corinthians 6, 10, Paul applies this same perspective to his own life, and it's helpful. We don't have time for that tonight, but notice these two things. He says, if you're weeping, you should be weeping as one who's not weeping, and if you're rejoicing as one who's not rejoicing. Do you see why that might be helpful? Because we tend to see one or the other, so... If you're a Christian, stop weeping, or if you're a Christian, stop rejoicing. One of those is a false scenario, and he says, no, both of them are different in a Christian life. This is why. What Paul is saying here is because we know that the age we live in is passing away, and because we know that this new age is dawning, it takes the ultimacy out of this life. Okay? It takes the things that can be the greatest achievement in life, the most important issue, the apocalyptic red light, green light of comedy or tragedy, and says, there's really more to the story than that, okay? That's what he's saying here. And so the idea here is that you experience and enjoy life because God created it, marriage included. The, and at the same time, you don't find ultimate and final fulfillment in it because you know there's something beyond it. You know there's something better. When he says, mourning as though they were not mourning. Why? Why is that true for us as Christians? Is the idea here some sort of stoicism? Maybe you remember the haiku from Fight Club. Flowers bloom and die. The wind brings butterflies or snow. A stone won't notice. 
right? Is it just that I won't let this world break me and no matter how sad it is, I won't cry? No. What he's pointing to is the fact that no matter how sad things get right now, it's like Samwise Gamgee said in The Lord of the Rings. When Samwise finds out that Gandalf is alive when he thought he was dead, he asks this question, he says, is everything sad going to become untrue? And Tolkien is tapping into a Christian idea there, that yes, that's exactly right, that what God has planned for Christians is so great and so powerful, it won't just balance out the sadness, it makes the sadness somewhat irrelevant comparatively. So when we mourn, we do so not ultimately. Paul applies this to when somebody in our midst dies. When somebody dies in the church, he says, do not mourn as those who have no hope. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be sad, but we can't be ultimately sad, right? We feel the pain of it, but we know that the pain is not permanent. And whatever's going on in your life, no matter how tragic it is, the reality of the Bible is because Jesus is coming, is coming back, that will be reversed. That will be replaced. That will be overturned. That will suddenly be made sense of. All of those things. And in the same way with rejoicing, for a different reason. He says those who rejoice as if they didn't rejoice. Once again, he doesn't say stop rejoicing. Christians should be grumpy. No, the idea here is that whatever great high you experience in life, it is nothing compared to the inflationary value that heaven is going to bring. And so you rejoice knowing that the best is yet to come. Knowing that as great as this is, it's not something that you would, um, well, literally die for lay your life down for as being the defining thing that saves your life. There's a sense where Christians can really experience the true joy because we know the giver of good gifts, but we're not enslaved to that joy. It can, it can go away and we can still be fine. We can mourn and not ultimately. We can rejoice and not ultimately. And notice what he says next. He says, uh, and those who buy as though they had no goods. Once again, this isn't aestheticism. He doesn't say real Christians buy less things. What he says is what we do with the things once we bought them is different. We hold them with an open hand. The reality here is if you understand God is a gracious giver and stuff is just stuff that won't last, it's not that you won't see a lot of it come in, but you won't accumulate it and you won't protect it and you'll be very naturally giving it away. You become a conduit for things and not a suppository for things. That's the idea. I don't want to quote Papa Roach. But they probably didn't say it first. It's not like they did anything original as musicians. But there's a song where they say, where the danger of owning things is when the things you own own you. It's an obvious idea. I don't have to attribute it to some dumb rock star. Um, but that's the reality. That's the difference, right? Do you have or does it have you? For the Christian, you can have stuff without it being ultimate, right? This philosophy that you see on bumper stickers that the rules of life are to gather as many toys before you die and then you win is so clearly silly to a Christian because it's, it's somewhat irrelevant. That's why Paul can say, I know what it's like to have a lot and I know what it's like to have a little and I've learned the secret of contentment because I can do all things through Jesus Christ. He says, with or without, Jesus is sufficient. And then he finishes and he says, uh, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. Literally what he says here is those who use the world as though they don't fully use the world. In other words, play the game, but don't use the game to get ahead. Okay? If you make music, make it. That's fine. Do it for a living. The Bible's all about that. But don't become part of the game. Don't try and get ahead in this system of this world which is passing away. Be a politician, but don't try and feel like if you can't hold your office, then your entire life doesn't matter, so you'll do anything to get the votes, right? Do you feel the line, the threshold between those two things? The reason is because two things. One, that world, politics, is passing away. It won't be here eternally. And two, because the new age, the new kingdom of Jesus Christ, which is countercultural to that political system, is already dawning. So it changes things. Now, how does this bring to bear back on marriage? He says, even if you have a wife as though you have none. Here's what he's saying. Marriage is not ultimate. Even if you're married tonight, as beautiful and tremendously powerful as that is, it's not the finish line, and it really only exists to look forward. This is how this brings to bear on singleness. This is why he's telling us all these things. 
Remember how I said it's, it's dark and we're asking, is the sun rising or is the sun setting? For Christians who are married, we're like the moon. Okay? We stand in the darkest of night and declare there's something more. Because Paul says marriage is really about Christ and his church. It's really just a picture of how much God loves you and how devoted he is to you. And so Christians stand in the darkness and say there's something more. We just reflect the light of the sun of the next day. But the singles have the advantage to walk so close to the horizon that the sun is just beaming on their face. Okay? The sunrise itself is present in the single life. Here's one way this plays out in the Bible. In the Old Testament, the Jews were not allowed to castrate people. It was against the law. And if you were a eunuch, someone who had been castrated, whether it was by choice or not, you were not allowed to enter into the tabernacle, to be the place where God was, to worship with his people. And then you get to the book of Isaiah, and he starts to say there's coming a time where eunuchs will serve in the temple. And you're like, what in the world is going on? And he says the same thing about foreigners. There's coming a time where foreigners will be in this house, and it will be a house of prayer, right? It's in this prophecy. And then Jesus comes, and he says the same thing. He says, people are going to enter the kingdom of God who were born eunuchs, meaning that there's, there's something wrong with the anatomy, who were made eunuchs, castrated, and those who become eunuchs for the kingdom of God. And he's not saying you should go castrate yourself from Jesus. He's saying some people will choose the celibate lifestyle. For the Jews, that was ir- it, it just couldn't be understood because the blessing was future. And it was all built in the seed. It was all built in your children. And so br- uh, bringing a new generation was moving another generation towards the Messiah. But the Messiah has come. And so the, the value of the eunuch and the fact that they can live in the way that we will all live in heaven as single people now is the sunrise on their faces. It shows something different. It stands directly against this theory of the apocalyptic romance and says, no, it is not about a spouse that satisfies me ultimately. No, this was only about something bigger, and maybe I don't get to watch the trailer, but I'm, I'm prepared to see the film. Okay. Now, he continues and he gives us another reason in verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. Before we keep reading, two clarifications. If you grew up in the church, the word worldly, every single time seems to have a negative con- connotation, right? Worldly things, worldly music, worldly places, these types of things. It does have that meaning. In John, in 1 John, he says, do not love the things of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, for they stand against God, okay? But here, he's not using that word in this sense. He's saying household, common, everyday things. He's not bringing a a, a negative connotation here. I'll show you that in a minute. And then the second thing is the word anxious. In English, anxious is always negative. In Greek, and the way that Jesus uses it, and even Paul himself, there's a positive version of an anxiety and a negative version. I'll prove it to you. In Philippians, Paul says something that's pretty extreme. He says, be anxious for nothing. And then later in the, in the chapter, he commends Timothy for being so anxious for the Philippian believers. Why? Because he's really recognizing that there's bad anxiety and good anxiety. Or let's use a better word that's more helpful, cares. That you can care too much, and there's appropriate care. The word he's using here is just that neutral word for care, okay? So let's read it again with that in mind. This is what he says. I want you to be free from cares. The unmarried man uh, cares about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man cares about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided, okay? What he's pointing out here is that singleness is better because you can devote yourself solely to the Lord, right? But the idea is not that the married man mistakenly divides his time. It's just true. Each and every one of you is like a Lego brick, okay? And you have a limited amount of pips. And everything you put in your life and connect to that brick takes up space in your life, right? I'm just talking really practically here. I would even argue that I'm a smaller Lego brick than most of you. I have less pips. It's a real challenge for me um, to maintain even a standard level of relationships, That's what Paul is saying here. He's just saying, when you add a wife into the scenario, you have more to care for. And it's not appropriate, men, 
It's not appropriate for you to go, ah, you know what, the twin bed I had in college is fine. You should care for your spouse. You should want them to have things to make their life nice. But the reality is, in caring for that, it's going to cost you time, and it's going to cost you money, and it's going to cost you focus. And the single person has the unique advantage to invest fully in their relationship with God in a way that the married person doesn't. Now, just to be clear here, this applies to buying a house. This whole chapter, you know, should I buy a house? Paul would say, well, let's talk about it. If you buy a house, you will be tied to a mortgage and you will be tied to a city and you won't be able to follow the Lord on a whim to somewhere else, right? Those realities are true. But that doesn't make it a sin issue. You do need to be aware of that, though. Starting a business, the same thing. Can you start a business? Yes, of course you can. Is it going to take a lot of time and investment? And is it going to be in tension with your relationship with your family, let alone the relationship with God? Of course it is. Okay? So he's just advocating realistic thinking here. And what he says is, I don't want you to be divided. And he continues and he says it's the same thing with the wife. He says, verse 34, his interests are divided and the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. Now, he himself says that the marriage bed is holy. So this is not singleness is holy, but holy in body and spirit, I think, is helpful. He means holy, holy. The word holy just means set apart. But the single person can be W-H-O, holy, set apart. Okay? All of those pips are free to serve the Lord. Now, this may seem irrelevant until I remind you of two things that the Bible envisions all of eternity in a growing and tremendously satisfying relationship with the Lord, and that all relationships take investment. They take time, okay? You don't grow closer to Jesus if you don't listen to the things he says, if you don't spend time in prayer, if you don't do the things that he asks you. If you love me, you'll obey me, he said. What I'm telling you here is that single people have the unique advantage of a head start in that relationship. And I know there's a part of us that goes, Makes sense on paper, but I don't believe it. But every one of us, if we'll just take a second, has probably met those older single Christians that just have the sweetest relationship with the Lord. If any of you know, have the privilege of knowing Chris Rep, our resident missionary, she always signs off her emails, honeymooning with Jesus. And that can sound so trite, unless you know Chris Rep, who doesn't have a trite bone in her body. She is the most sober and serious person I've ever met. She means it, and you see it in her life. She lives her life in the presence of the Lord in a beautiful and wonderful way. Here's the thing you need to get tonight if you're not married. Is that even on your radar? Have you even considered the, the advantage that you have, that you can really invest that time in it? I'll tell you what, I love reading. I read a lot less because I have a family. And that doesn't mean I wish I didn't have a family so I could read more. But that tension is a real one. And I'm not even saying that I wish I had thought of this in advance. But I do wish I had counted the cost. Even if it was just so I could lay it down, you know. How much more in, in this reality, you know. Now, notice verse 35 because it's really important. Because I know some of us are feeling convicted right now and maybe even regret. Verse 35, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you. That word restraint is too loose. It's too easy. What he really says is not to lay a noose around your neck. That's the literal translation. He says, I'm not telling you this to hang you. This is not an aha moment like, I knew you didn't love the Lord. That's why you have a family. He's, he, this isn't a sin issue. Okay? But, he says, to promote good order and secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Here's, here's how we should hear this as married people. Are you aware of this phenomenon? Do you even think through your cares and determine a way to make this work? There are ways to make it work, of course there is, but they come at a cost. And unfortunately, there's been men in the history of the church who should not have gotten married because of what they dragged their marriages through. John Wesley's wife separated from him. George Whitfield's wife constantly complained and was frustrated and publicly wrote against his ministry. Verse 36, if anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry, it is no sin. So now he brings it to bear directly on the issue and he says, you're currently engaged, 
there's this time of trouble coming, and he says, if you're not behaving properly towards your spouse, or sorry, to the one you're engaged in, he says, just be married. Stop asking, is now the right time to be married? Don't try and hold off on the wedding for two years through these present difficulties when you're struggling. Just consummate the wedding. It's fine, he says. But, he says, verse 37, whoever is firmly established in his heart being under no necessity but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. When he says keep her as his betrothed here, it's literally to keep her as a virgin. So it may be through the time of difficulty a long engagement, but it also might be the ending of that engagement in pursuing a life of singleness. But I want you to notice how he says you come to this conclusion if you're already pursuing a relationship. He gives us four modifications, and they're really just two repeated. When is it right to break off your engagement for a life of singleness? When is it right to throw your chips in this pile? What does he say? A couple of things. Verse 37, whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity or constraint, but having his desire under control and determined this in his heart. Twice he says, this is your own determination. And twice he says, not because of outside pressures. Okay. So the church to come in and say, you'll be a better person if you stay single is out of bounds. For a culture to come in and say, you'll never be happy if you're not married is out of bounds. You have to be able to remove those pressures from your decision. And then you have to, you have to find in yourself both the determination as well as the self-control. Okay? If your choice is between a single life of, or a, a single life of debauchery and constant sexual struggle and marriage, the choice is always marriage. Paul's made that clear earlier in the chapter. So you have to count the cost in all of these things. But that decision can be made. And he says here, he will do well. Verse 38, so then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. I'm going to be honest. I think the American church, even our church right now, isn't ready to hear better. So I will take good. If you can see these two realities of marriage and singleness on par as good, I'll settle for there. But you will not be able to remove that the Apostle Paul himself, who has tasted both worlds, most likely, been married before and is now single and is choosing to stay single, says, it's a better life. Notice how he finishes verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. In other words, he says, this applies to those who are no longer married as well. This should be an option on the table. It's something you should consider, and not just in the confines of the American dream, because the big message tonight is, maybe God has something better for you than the American dream. And he says, if you want to get married, that's fine. You have not sinned. But notice how he finishes here. Verse 40, yet in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. I can't remove that word happy. I'd like to. I'd like to simplify things and, and keep everything on the up and up and on the par, but he says something that's so hard for many of us to believe, that the single life is happier in his opinion. Notice how he finishes here. He says, I think that I too have the spirit of God. Now, if you don't hear Paul's tongue firmly planted in his cheek as he writes this sentence, you should. Because the Corinthian church boasted in how spiritual they were. And that's the reason why they were making all of these terrible decisions about sex and relationship. And Paul says, I think I also have the spirit. Remember, this is Paul who planted the church by the powerful preaching of the Spirit of God. Paul who was called into ministry by miraculous, whose entire life has been a demonstration of the Spirit. He's speaking in small terms here to kind of make fun of their view. And frankly, if you're single tonight, you have to hear that challenge as well. As much as this message may not jive with you, may not resonate, Paul says, I think I might have the Spirit as I say these things. Now, there's something really important to recognize, and this is where I want to finish tonight. Paul is addressing an audience of people who have the option, right? It's right in front of them. We're currently engaged, or we were talking about getting married, should we, yes or no? You cannot directly grab this and apply it to people who would like to be married and are not, right? Who find themselves in an undesirable state of singleness. There are principles there. And I don't want to press them too much in my own words because the reality is I don't have a dog in that race. 
And Paul is so sensitive in this passage to recognize that lives are different, and he has better understanding. He can speak to singles because he's living the single life. He can compare it to marriage because he knows what married life is like. You know, I got married at 21, and so I don't want to just assume I understand the experience of an undesirable singleness. But there are lots of people in the church who do know these things, and I'd like to finish with their words tonight. Okay, for starters, according to Paul here, there's advantages to singleness, and those advantages don't go away just because you don't want them. It may be that what God has given you in your singleness, at least for now, is a severe mercy. And I don't know if you're familiar with the phrase, but I took it from a book, a book that all of you should read by a, name, by a guy named Sheldon Vonnegut. And Sheldon Vonnegut and his, his bride have one of the most incredible love stories I've ever read. Nicholas Sparks pales in comparison to the relationship that these two people actually had. And in the midst of their relationship and their devotion to one another, in this incredible story, they meet C.S. Lewis, who's a professor at Oxford where they're both attending, and become Christians. And their life continues on, and she gets cancer, and she dies. And so she, he begins to correspond with C.S. Lewis as somebody who's also lost his wife to cancer. And C.S. Lewis is listening to all these things, and after years of correspondence, he uses that phrase, and he says, I think your wife's death was a severe mercy because you were incapable of loving God to the full degree that he has for you as long as she was alive. And he, he prefaces before that, he says, I would never say that to somebody who I wasn't so close to. But as Sheldon presses through and thinks through that himself. And he asks the question. It's really interesting to watch him do it. He says, I started to think, what would have happened if my wife miraculously got better after months of treating her cancer? And he just plays out what life could have been like. He lays a few options on the table and he has to confess the danger zone that he was living in where he'd become jealous of God because God and his wife had suddenly grown very close in her cancer. And he was now on the outside and knew that he was losing her and, and God was going to be inheriting something greater. Anyways, as he processes these things, I would just suggest to you tonight the possibility. C.S. Lewis in another place says, the hardness of God is sweeter than the softness of men. Even in his compulsion, he says, we find freedom. And to add another witness, Elizabeth Elliot is an interesting study. And one of the reasons she's interesting is because she was engaged to a man for five years because of the passage we just read. They were both aspiring to be missionaries, her in Africa and him in South America. And this passage and the value of singleness and wanting to serve the Lord and not be distracted, they spent five years engaged praying through this until they finally got married. And a short time later, on their first mission field, he was killed by the Aka Indians. And she lived the rest of her life, well, until very late in her life as single. And so she's writing here, um, as a single woman. This is what she says. But having now spent more than 41 years single, I have learned that it is indeed a gift, not one I would choose, not many women would choose, but we do not choose gifts, remember? We are given them by the divine giver who knows the end from the beginning and wants above all else to give us the gift of himself. It's within the sphere of, his, of these circumstances that he chooses for us, single, married, widowed, that we receive him. It's there and nowhere else that he makes himself known to us. It's there we are allowed to serve him. In other words, like we found last week, where you're at right now is the place where God wants to meet you. It's the place where he wants you to serve him. It's the place where he is going to use your current circumstances to reveal his goodness and his plan for your life. And so, so the struggle is real. The difficulties are implied. Paul doesn't say that it's easier to be single. He says that it's better. And sometimes that's a severe mercy. But are you even open to those realities? Are we even open to the reality that underlies this, that God has sovereignly put you right where you are, given you the things that he's given you, and withheld the things he's withheld because he has a plan, and it's a good plan. Let's pray. Father, 
this world, the one that's passing away, so often we have to take that on faith. The cracks are showing. We know that this world doesn't satisfy. We constantly find that all of these things in life fall short of the ideals that are pitched to us and even our personal ideals. We long for something better, but it's hard. It's hard to really live in light of this new day that's dawning and settle for a life that goes against the grain of this world's value system and promises something better. To choose a life where there's hardship and difficulty and suffering and maybe even loneliness and see any benefit there at all. But there is this consistent voice from those who have lived the single life that agree with Paul and say, it's a good life. Who can agree with the psalmist and say, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Who recognize the tremendous opportunity they've been given to start pressing into what God has for them. I pray that you would teach us all, married or single, divorced, remarried or widowed, that you teach us all these things and that we would see your goodness in our present circumstances and when we can't see it, we would look all the way back to the cross and the horror and the difficulty and the suffering of that and we'd go, nevertheless, that was the greatest and goodest act of God and that we would be able to say it's the same God here. It's the same God now. I pray as well that you'd help us to be a church that is supportive, not just of marriages, but supportive of singles. That we would, as a community, be a place where single people can find uh, the broad relationships they need and find the support and the encouragement they need uh, and that they would be a vibrant and full part of your church and your mission. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.